Labor Wave Radio and Opening Space for the Radical Imagination present Waste After the Revolution with Andrea Haberkamp. the revolution use these landfills as the new gold mines we put so much plastic in there that will not go away for thousands of years and metals we can get those back out we will no longer have our lives dominated by single-use items they are beholden to the cups the cups are actually not beholden to them under under consumer capitalism we've created this runaway train There's no single figurehead that we can shut down, like we could shut down a factory that'll have the effect that we need. Space for the Radical Imagination presents in podcast miniseries After the Revolution. After the Revolution is inspired by the desire to offer more than a diagnosis of what is wrong with today by focusing on what we might be able to bring about instead. Each episode within this series will begin by highlighting the importance of considering one particular feature of society, then imagining what it might look like after the revolution and finally offering some ideas on how we get to this revolutionary society. Our third episode is Waste After the Revolution, featuring Andrea Haverkamp, current president of the Coalition of Graduate Employees Labor Union, a PhD candidate in environmental engineering at Oregon State University, and frequent guest host on LaborWave Radio. Please follow us on all our social media platforms at LaborWave Radio. You can find all of our show's content for free and available at LaborWaveRadio.com. And we hope you enjoy this episode on Waste After the Revolution. So in thinking about waste... I have two quick questions for you to get this conversation started. First, how do you define waste? And secondly, why does it matter and why is it important to think about considerations around waste? 
for today's present society? When I think about waste in the most common way I can explain it, it is an output, a byproduct, and something that's the end result. So when I think about waste, I think about everything that goes to a landfill, everything that goes to recycling, much of that still goes to a landfill, everything that ends up in our water. And I think it's different than pollution in that waste is often considered, you know, just thinking of even the term waste management as trash, as garbage, as sewage, as various gunks that need to be specifically cared for, treated, disposed of, and put somewhere safe. I think that is how I would define waste. And you said in distinction from pollution. So that's interesting to me because I do, when the word waste comes to my mind, that tends to be where I go to is like contaminants, pollution, bad things. You're using it in a much broader sense. I'm using it in the more broader sense in that waste is often collected and treated. You know, when we talk about pollution, a lot of that just goes straight into the atmosphere and there it is, it's in the atmosphere or it's in the water. Now, waste can certainly go into the water as well. But in more common vernacular, waste is your trash, your recyclables, where your water goes after you let out the bathtub or the sink, and everything that gets thrown in or outside the trash can. So what's so important about waste? What's so important about waste is it is the byproduct of capitalism. Capitalism is a consumption and disposable culture. Disposability culture and consumer capitalism create this nexus in our society where we produce more trash than I think anyone can even realize. Without going into numbers, we have a growing trash crisis in the globe. We do not know exactly where to put it all, and we don't exactly know what's in every ton of trash. And a lot of this almost all of it will be around for thousands of years. All I can think of when I see a plastic bottle or even a plastic bag or a trash bag or a bag that I pick up my dog's waste in, right, on a walk, is that that bag will be around for thousands of years. And it just disappears behind a hill in Corvallis about 10 miles up. It's the societal equivalent of taking perhaps a broken pen and just shoving it behind your bed and hoping you never see it and forget you put that broken pen behind your bed. That is what we do as a globe with trash if we have the ability to have waste services. And in countries that don't have what we have, which is a very fancy backyard to throw all of this trash, it just goes into their water, into their ground, into their soil, into their crop field. Trash as we know it has not existed for 200,000 years of humans' history. This is a product largely of the past couple hundred years, specifically the last hundred, when oil and petroleum use skyrocketed around World War II and after in the United States. And it created, uh, you know, what I think a lot of capitalists will call the most advanced progress in human history. But what it really is, is it's unsustainable and it is destroying our way of life beneath our feet, hidden behind the hills in Benton County, for example. I've heard stories, and I'm hoping you can elaborate and give some more of the details about this, but of things like Garbage Island, 
where there's apparently just tons of plastic floating around in the middle of the ocean. What is that? And how, how damaging is that for that to even exist? Yeah, it's, it's really unprecedented that we're creating entirely new landscapes out of single-use plastics, styrofoams, metals, whether it is an island-sized mound of trash that developed because of the way the ocean just kind of pushed all this trash in, in its natural wave patterns into a certain area where they conglomerated, or whether it is what looks like natural hills when you drive up north of town. But those are actually landfills between here, uh, where I live in Corvallis, Oregon, and Monmouth, just north of, north of us. It looks like hills when you drive by it, but they're human-made piles of garbage that are covered, that are sealed, that have soil and plants put on top of them to hide the fact that it is 100 plus feet of trash. I'd like to explore a little bit more what you were saying about the disposability culture of waste under capitalism, because there's a couple of things there that sound interesting to me. One is that waste under capitalism is a particular phenomenon that doesn't necessarily exist prior to this mode of production. But it also sounds like you're suggesting that there's a kind of relatedness to the way that we deal with our own waste byproducts and the way we maybe even treat human beings and non-human animals. That is completely true. Absolutely. So disposability culture is talked about in a lot of ways, whether it is um, with human beings, which humans are disposable, which lives we're seeing in the COVID-19 crisis are disposable, such as troops would be when you throw them to the slaughter. Our nurses and our retail workers and service workers are seen as disposable in a calculated human cost. And it is painfully evident in these times that that is also a disposability culture created under white supremacy and legacies of colonialism, which lives, which lands, and uh, which bodies are to be disposed of. This disposability logic moves into our daily life with single-use cups, single-use straws, but at the big structural level, right, we've designed the society bottom up and top down to dispose of human beings and to dispose of products for continual resource extraction, continual production. And you can't have continual extraction and continual production without continual disposal and degradation. So it's built into the very fabric of capitalism that we must dispose so that we must extract to create again. What would you say the impacts on broader climate change are when it comes to the way we deal with waste under capitalism? Like how much does our system of disposing that you're talking about, you know, using single-use items for the sake of recycling this kind of mode of consumption and production? How much does that actually impact the the health of the planet and climate change itself? Consumption under capitalism is the main driver of climate change. If we're talking not only about a handful of companies, right? What are those handful of companies doing? I think contrary to what a lot of media likes to push that gas and fuel and oil, right? That oil is extracted primarily for maybe cars, sometimes jets. A lot of oil is really pulled out of the ground to form plastic, to form various plastics, which go into our sponges, they go into our single-use items, they go into producing so much of our consumer electronics, our cars, 
you know, plastics really shape the world around us. I am very skeptical that anyone is listening to this without plastic involved. And the impacts on our climate are catastrophic. I deeply worry about the status of this planet if consumption, disposal, waste production continue. And I think the biggest impact when we think about waste, so we talk about climate change and a lot of uh, production and extraction of oil, but waste is what keeps our mind completely off the fact that we are generating pounds and pounds and tons and tons of waste in our neighborhood each and every month, year, and day. That waste that gets picked up off of our curb essentially gets put out of our minds and we continue the cycle again. So until we focus on waste, the end product, the output of capitalism and consumerism, we really can't get at the source. The conversation really does get to the point where it becomes quickly overwhelming. So I would like to talk soon about what it looks like after the revolution, understanding that that's going to be a very challenging subject to tackle. But I I want, before we do that, to just focus a little bit more on what I think your emphasis is, is on the structural level of waste. Because for me, when these conversations come up, it's, it's extremely common, I think, for people to start feeling like pangs of individual guilt and shame over their own lifestyle and consumer choices. And I want to hear your thoughts about that, like how much individual agency is there within this whole kind of waste system that we're talking about? And how much focus should we maintain on the kind of structural elements of capitalism when we're discussing waste? Yeah, it is an absolute structural issue. No individual is making plastic cups. No one here is making cardboard wax covered cups. No one, no individual is responsible for those being giant industries and facilities and factories globally producing those products that then structure our lives. As if we as individuals try our best, and I have tried my darndest, you know, my water bottle, my coffee mug, my um, you know, refillable containers that you take to the co-op and you get bulk, bulk items and saying no to the so many things, you know, not using paper towels. You can try all that all you want, but as an individual, we can't feel too much guilt. We should try our honest non-guilt best to limit our productions of waste. But it is the structure of extraction and consumption which creates the waste. And until we tackle those as a society and really overthrow the dominant powers, you know, we can't put too much blame on ourselves. I think that's a perfect segue. And let's talk about what happens after we've toppled those dominant powers, after we've shucked capitalism off our backs and put it into the dustbin of history. What does waste look like after the revolution? So the concept, I think, of trash cans and of landfills as we know it and recycling, those are almost all gone. We will, after the revolution, use these landfills as the new gold mines. We put so much plastic in there that will not go away for thousands of years and metals, rare earth minerals, right? We can get those back out. We will no longer have 
our lives dominated by single-use items. But not this, that is not to say that we are not going to be able to produce the life-saving medical interventions, prescription drugs that, that are necessary. We're going to, to find that sweet spot where we can preserve as much care for our elders, newborns, children, our health needs, and our care needs with all but eliminating resource extraction, refinement, and subsequent disposal. What that looks like is, I think, a very careful and community-based model of reuse. I think today we could shut off every factory that produces ceramic mugs, reusable water bottles, disposable cups, and I think we'll be fine for hundreds of years at least. I think we have enough cups made. We really do. And so for things like that, we won't need to produce. But I think no matter what, after the revolution, given the Earth's population, and I think no one would want to go back to measles, mumps, and rubella, there will need to be small production of goods. Not goods as in the consumer capitalism model, but items which will be able to save lives. And I think under this new model, what we think of as the other sort of elephant in the room regarding waste, which is sewage. So our dishwater, our bathroom water, there's actually incredible technology which already exists to harness the byproducts from our sewage and from our wastewater and produce some energy. You know, in my master's uh, program, I did a project, a design project, and I saw that even just one wastewater facility the size of the one down in Southtown and Corvallis could theoretically power a small village with electricity. So in the future, it looks a lot less like these things are shameful things to talk about, that it's shameful to talk about where the sewage goes, but that we actually get very excited about when we are done with a bag, where does it go? And what happens after we flush? I'm really struck by something you said where you described the landfills of the future as the gold mines in that society. And it just makes me think a little bit more about the production of value. Right? Like for me, capitalism really comes down to like the way that we have assigned and ascribed value on lives, on the environment, on fictitious forms of currency, right? Like gold, does it really have that much value that we ascribe to it? And you're suggesting, in my understanding, that the entire conceptions around what will be seen as valuable and what will be seen as not as valuable will be completely shifted in this future society around waste. Oh, absolutely. You know, if I had to do an art project, if I was a visual artist, you know, sometimes people draw these utopian visions of, um, you know, what life looks like after the revolution. Perhaps everyone is in a field putting in their work towards the crops. That's certainly a part of it. Perhaps everybody is um, in this big, smooth, picture-perfect sci-fi landscape or there's space involved. I don't think none of that, though. I think we're going to live in trash world. We've already created trash world. We have to learn to embrace, to nurture earth back to where it needs to be, while also just being keenly reminded that this trash ain't going anywhere. Even in Northern Europe, where they have waste to energy facilities, where some areas actually import trash to burn it for electricity, you know, at the end of the day, you still have still some waste. You still have the ashes and what couldn't burn. And so it's about learning to sit with these things and not avoid them, not to shove what we view as waste 
off to the curb to be picked up by some trucks every week. But learning to really sit with it and to live with it. I think if we all quit throwing out our trash for a month, we would see that so many of the cups in the bags have alternative uses, that we could turn off a lot of these single-use factories overnight. And we'll realize that we'll need to come up with a, as a community with creative ways to reuse and reimagine what these materials can be. It sounds too like the stigma around this stuff would really be shifted and probably even our conceptions of ourselves as humans will probably be shifted in this future society. I wanted to share the story uh, from my own uh, history in participating in a shout out to the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking. I guess in the loosest sense, you could call it like an anarchist camp. But one of the things that they had done at this place in uh, Massachusetts was they used a collective house as their um, their school site, and they created an entire like kitchen from scratch that they built in the front yard, and they had compost toilets and like solar panel showers all over the property that they had. And for me, the compost stuff was completely new, completely gross at first. And it was amazing uh, how much intention and focus they had like done in terms of like an ecological sustainable uh, system for just their little plot of land and how much you get like used to and like kind of normalize just compost, like your own byproducts, your own waste. So that's like a small micro scale iteration of that. What do you think that could look like on a more scaled up sense, like the stigmas around these things or the ways that we orient ourselves towards our own waste? I think the stigmas that are associated with waste are endemic to our society, whether it is sort of jokes and denigration about people who work with trash or in sanitation and waste or wastewater. So I think that removing that stigma not only removes the stigma about our own bodies and what's seen as shameful and what's seen as gross and what we've been told are gross sights or smells or sounds. So I think removing that stigma liberates us as human beings and a level that I don't think we can even fathom, but I would like to think as I'm fathoming it, that after the revolution, this will make it just as valiant of a contribution to our culture and to our neighborhood to, to care after our little local sort of microsystems of sewage production and, and composting and alternating around where it goes. I think right now, sending everything to a single facility for processing is just, it's not tenable. We can continue to use that system actually water and wastewater as far as municipal water, municipal wastewater. If that infrastructure is built, you don't need to tear it down. So where we're at, we already got these pipes. We might as well use them. You know, I'm, I'm really inspired by what I heard. Someone said they generate megawatts. They generate not using electricity. And that's the best way to, to change things. Right now, if that infrastructure is still built, we can use it because, again, when it comes to water and wastewater, we tend to think we individually are the problem. If I flush less, the problem will be better. Well, the biggest problems with wastewater are that our treatment plants have to treat industrial waste. We have a system of regulation where factories all across the river that supplies our drinking water are allowed to put toxins and factory byproducts into the water. And then we have to treat that, too. So getting rid of all these factors and stuff will actually allow our municipal water and wastewater systems 
to continue for quite a long time. And if and when in a thousand, two thousand years, these systems start to break down, I think decentralized compost toilets and uh, cycling out where that compost goes and how it's dealt with, uh, similar to the way you were talking about, is perfectly normal. But for places that have wastewater systems, we don't need to tear them up. I'm wondering about the kind of management of this system of waste and its implications in broader governing structures. So as you're talking about some of these things we already have in our existing paradigm and we can reuse them and reconfigure them in ways that are more beneficial, what, how does that implicate governments? How does that, what kind of scale of government would that require and how like local would that system be versus regional or national or international? There's a lot of watershed-based approaches, which are really enticing. And with everything, I think first and foremost, and primarily is a centering of the indigenous peoples in the indigenous uh, systems of governance and land management and care and stewardship that emerge. And on that level, I think state and federal governments, as we know it, will not exist, nor would they have any meaningful input on how, where I am here in the Mid-Willamette Valley of, of Oregon, what waste does here. It is an extremely local and extremely prestigious position to be in, to be talking about not the means of production, but the means of waste sanitation and managing waste. So I think that those positions would be democratic and I think that they would be of the highest importance. We care about what we eat, and we need to think as deeply about what happens after. It's always interesting to kind of get a broad view of this stuff and like articulate in the ways that you have. It's been very rich and interesting. And I'd like to get it somewhat more concrete for listeners and for myself in asking you to walk us through a day in the life after the revolution. Yes. So I would wake up. I don't turn on a light bulb. I sort of wake up naturally as the sun wakes up. When I go to brush my teeth in the morning, there is a horsehair and wood sort of toothbrush that I can use. I would be able to, you know, still wash my hair, wash my hands, because I think that where I'm located, we already have water infrastructure that should keep going on for several hundred more years with minimal repairs, right? But all the food I eat and drink would be, it would be used all in obviously reusable or recycled or taken from the trash containers. I think fridges like refrigerators wouldn't really exist. I think we would have coolers. And for people who balk at that, I would just say that there are more than half of the world's population right now lives without a refrigerator. Refrigerators are very modern in terms of a capitalist production. So I don't think there would be really a need for a refrigerator for me to go eat. And I would work my day. However, that is whether it is labor of the household, labor of care, labor of food, and all throughout it, right? There are things such as rags, water that I don't see any waste really being generated. When I use the restroom, there is either a vault toilet or a compost toilet. 
a vault toilet is kind of like an outhouse that I can use. Plant materials can be used instead of toilet paper being produced. Yeah, and I think that everything we have would be junk that we make work. If cell phone towers continue to exist, we don't need to tear them down. But if they're still running, I think these phones are from the trash and any parts are made from the trash. There's no new iPhones after the revolution. We just work our darndest to make sure that we make them last as long as we can because we're not going to replace the oil fields in this future with lithium fields. So I think after the revolution, the day sounds pretty relaxed. It sounds like a very beautiful society. And I want to segue into what I think is often the most difficult part of these conversations beyond just expanding our imagination is how do we get there from here to there? What does that process look like? And I want to like focus a little bit on what you just said, that there are no new iPhones after the revolution. And while that sounds amazing to me, for some, let's just be honest, some capitalist bootlicker, that's going to sound like the most terrifying future scenario ever. Yeah, there's no new computers. Yeah, the pathway to this future society sounds like it'll be highly, highly contested. So what do you think the pathway looks like? If I could wave a magic wand tomorrow, everyone would realize the climate emergency we are in, the climate demolition we are performing, and every single factory that produces consumer electronics, consumer plastics, and prepackaged processed materials and goods that aren't essential for food or medical need, that fire trucks would go out there Emergency crews would go out there and shut those factories down immediately. Shut them down immediately. That's how we get there. Our system of regulation, and I could say this as someone who used to work at the EPA, it, it just mitigates disaster. It doesn't remove disaster. It, it, it regulates and allows pollution and waste. It doesn't eliminate it. So we got to immediately just shut these things down. And what are we going to do next? Well, that's something we'll all have to figure out. But I always return to the example of the plastic cup. If you want a soda at McDonald's the day after we shut down every cup factory, bring a cup. If you don't have a cup, I'm sure there's a recycling store that's got one. If they don't got one, ask your neighbor. We produce more cups than people in the United States every year. We have cups, right? So I think when you go from there and you explain that to someone, oh, we just shut down the cup factories. Uh, It's pretty fine. Then you extend it back. We say, well, we've got enough computing devices for reasonably every small neighborhood or every collective to have access to the internet and telecommunication in a way that has never existed in human history. We shut those down. How does it happen? A mass movement. We organize and we realize that these things are what will wipe out the human race. So we have no choice but to shut those factories down. And we just keep going. We keep going from superfluous devices to those where we start to say, well, I don't know if we could shut down the pacemaker factory, can we? Maybe not, right? This is something that we'll have to talk about when we get there. Medical syringes and needles. How much metals do we need? I think when you get down to the brass tacks of what we actually need to maintain human health and safety 
and care for each other, you'll find that we could probably recycle, refine, and dig up out of the landfills the materials, plastics, uh, and metals that we need for essential things like pacemakers or syringes. So I think we just go stepwise. I think that's how we get there. Very first thing, tomorrow, we shut down the plastic bottle and plastic cup factories. We don't need them. I love that your first target of contestation is the cup factory, as opposed to the monarchs or the president. The guns. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, right, because it's so structural. They are beholden to the cups. The cups are actually not beholden to them. Under, under consumer capitalism, we've created this runaway train. And this runaway train is, right, this whole global economy. There's no single figurehead that we can shut down, like we could shut down a factory that'll have the effect that we need. And I use cups for a very specific reason. Because without water for 24 hours, a human is not in great shape. Drinking water and how we drink water is, is the most, it's one of the most grounding things as a human being. We navigate it every hour. And I think when you start to really look at how we have enough cups, and I don't think anyone's going <laughs> to, you know, I, 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 I just laugh, but I, it's hard to say, but I don't think anyone out there is struggling listening to this podcast to find a cup. So yeah, I think it's one of the most basic things that we can all agree on is, yeah, we need to shut down the cup factories. So that's, that's part of why I, I center on the cups. Do you feel that there's any existing practices or instances where we are modeling this future society around waste? There's an intentional community in Washington known as uh, Windward. And what Windward is, is it's a collection of people, usually a, a dozen or less, who live on about 100 acres up there. And they, their primary thing is they live off of that land. They maintain their own sewage. They dig the crops. They, they, they use a pig as what they call their bioreactor. They have one pig that can go through and kind of root up uh, the plots for land for crops every year and eat the roots, it turns it into fat, turns it into muscle. And this pig can live for several years doing this very intensive labor. For bodies, they have a cemetery, which uh, is a natural body burial, and they allocate a certain number of acreage for each body that they put in the ground. And I think they model very well what it looks like to live very remotely on very little in what is not the most hospitable place. They're kind of in the high mountain sort of uh, dry desert landscape up there. After the show, I can look up exactly their location. I think it's White Salmon, Washington. Yeah, but I think that those folks, after visiting them, I think they're doing a pretty good job. They use very little electricity. And do they have solar panels? No. Do they have wind energy? No. Do they generate it themselves? No. They generate megawatts. They use virtually no electricity, but there is a hydroelectric dam 30 minutes from them on the Columbia River. So we're not going to shut down this dam overnight. So the most environmentally friendly thing is to just run one wire out there while this thing is still in operation and get a little bit of electricity. And that's, I think, why I don't see solar panels or wind farms 
as any part of a solution right now because that's just creating more waste in the future. Um, so I think those folks are doing it quite well. Well, I want to give you the opportunity to like conclude here with any final thoughts or things you want to make sure you articulate as we kind of end this very expansive conversation. We have to learn to not only think really critically about everything we put in those plastic bags or garbage bags, which themselves will be around for hundreds of years, just the bags themselves, not only what's in it. We have to think very deeply about it, about where it goes and about why it's in there. And we got to start loving waste. And I mean, loving it. We always talk about getting our hands in the dirt, but we don't talk about getting our hands uh, in our feces. <laughs> but that's an essential part of the human experience. We live, we eat, we produce human waste, and we produce material waste. You shuck a piece of corn, where does that go? It goes into the compost. Well, if you drink a plastic out of a plastic cup, what's that cup going to do? Exist in perpetuity. So, yeah, we got to start loving waste. Wastewater, sewage, landfills, trash. These cannot be negative words. They must be joyful words. We need to get knee deep in this waste. And we already live in a planet and in a society overwhelmed with trash. And the revolution will emerge from and with all of this waste and trash. With that, I really want to thank you for your time and talking about this future revolutionary society with us. And we should continue having this conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I don't think